Welcome to Changemaker EDU, a podcast that inspires powerful individual and collective transformation by sharing leadership, personal development, and education changemaking ideas and stories to ignite people like you to create the change deep within your soul, embody your calling, and bring your dreams to life. I'm your host, David K. Richards, and I share wisdom from my 25 plus years as an education innovator, school founder and CEO, mindset teacher and leadership coach, but also interviewing other diverse paradigm shifters. Join me in our grassroots movement to create lasting impact, one education change maker at a time. everyone. I just had a great conversation here with Dr. Peter Gray and would love to ask him what he thinks are some of the key takeaways that we had in our conversation today. Well, I think there are different, in some sense, levels of takeaways for for parents and educators, depending on what you feel motivated for, what you feel ready for. Yeah. Uh, The most radical point I was making is that... uh, Children don't need school, as we usually think of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that children can educate themselves if we provide the opportunities for that. There are now thousands of children. It's still a small percentage of children. Uh, and there are thousands of adults who have grown up without what we usually think of as school and who are doing just great right. <laughs> in the right. world. They're getting good jobs. They go on to higher education if they wish, who did not go to school. This idea that you have to do a, a school, that you have to do school or homeschool that is based on school in some curriculum-like way in order to succeed in this world is not true. It's not true if you provide the opportunities for children to use their native curiosity and play uh, to educate themselves. They need the opportunity. They need the freedom to do it. They need the resources to do it and so forth. And there are many democratic schools now that provide those opportunities. They're still a relatively small number, but many compared to in the past. And uh, there are many people, so-called unschoolers, who are doing this, and there's more and more unschoolers getting together to do it. So that's one kind of takeaway. But not very many people are ready to go that far with their kids right right now. So the other takeaway is what can you do if your child is going to a typical school (laughs) uh, where there's lots of homework, where their days are regimented, where there's relatively little opportunity to play at school, and in a world where it is becoming more and more difficult to just send your kids outdoors to play and expect that they'll find playmates that way. Mm -hmm. So I think the real challenge for parents, because play is so important for children's development, the real challenge for parents is under these typical circumstances, What can you do to find a way for your child or children to play, really play, away from adult control with other children in today's world? Uh, I've made the point, and I've made the point in many of my writing, that such play is extremely important for children's development, that children are suffering from anxiety, depression, and even committing suicide these days because of the way we've deprived them of 
the kinds of freedoms that make them happy and that lead to the development of the sorts of character traits that allow them to deal, to be resilient and deal with the bumps in the road of life. So how do you provide those opportunities for children to play? And that's a challenge. There's various ways to meet that challenge. You can find some ideas about it on the website of Let Grow. And we're also creating, I'm also working with the National Institute for Play uh, to develop a website where um, parents and uh, and actually uh, professionals, including pediatricians and um, and educators, can find ways to help bring more play into schools mm-hmm. and into communities. All right. Welcome, everyone. I'm here today with Peter Gray. Hello, Peter. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you. All right. Thanks for being here today. I want to start with just reading uh, Peter's bio. So Peter Gray is a research professor of psychology and neuroscience at Boston College. His recent research focuses on the role of play in human evolution and how children educate themselves through play and exploration when they are free to do so. He has expanded on these ideas in his book, Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. He also authors a regular blog called Freedom to Learn for Psychology Today magazine and a Substack series entitled Play Makes Us Human. He's one of the founders of the nonprofit Alliance for Self-Directed Education and of the nonprofit Let Grow, the mission of which is to renew children's freedom to play and explore independently of adult control. All right, I'm so excited to have you here today. And I just have been reading up on you and watching all your videos and reading as many things I could get my hands on and really excited to share your research and points of view with the audience. And I'd be curious to start with what is it, what does self-directed learning even mean? Because if you think about the traditional school system, that word doesn't really show up very, that term doesn't really show up very often. So what does it even mean? Yeah, so it's actually a term that people use with different meanings. Um, Okay. Let me say what my meaning is. And I I might also say that I actually prefer to use the term self-directed education Ah, rather than self-directed learning. Because the term self-directed learning, if you were to Google it, um, is largely what's being written about is adult learning, adults uh, learning what they need to know for their job or then so on and so forth. And sometimes it's used within relatively standard schools to mean the self-directed learning of what you're being required to learn in school. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> and an important that's distinction. not yeah. what I'm talking about mm-hmm. when I okay. talk about self-directed education. Okay. It, it, I also think the term self-directed education has a more profound connotation because what I'm really saying is that children are competent to direct their education, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is more than learning. (laughs) Education is the whole gestalt of growing up, of figuring out what it is, where, who you are in this world, what it is you want to do in this world. What is it that I need to know to do what I want in this world? This all comes from the self, from the individual. And, um, 
you know, to say that children are capable of self-directed learning is not a very profound statement. I mean, amoebas are capable of self-directed learning by a certain definition. <laughs> right. Everything learns in a self-directed way. It has right. to be self-directed. You know? right. But the idea that children can really take charge of their development and growth, that is a radical and profound idea. <laughs> right. And I have, over the years, I wasn't initially convinced of this, but because of my research, because of my experiences as first a father and then a researcher and then somebody who's paying attention to a lot of what's going on in the educational world, I now believe this is true. I also, at one point, not only have I done research with young people who are educating themselves in this kind of way, right. Uh, either through what's called unschooling as a approach to homeschooling yeah. or uh, in what are called uh, democratic, often called democratic schools for self-directed education where there's no curriculum, uh, where the staff don't call themselves teachers, uh, where <laughs> children are truly free uh, to play and explore and follow their own interests in an age mix group in a place where there's all kinds of educational opportunities possible but no requirements. Uh, I've been studying this for years, or some of these institutions have been going present for years, and um, I have become convinced that it works. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, it runs so contrary to what um, what the standard view is, and what the standard view has been for centuries. <laughs> so. Right. So, so it's a radical idea that's not readily understood or accepted by most, by most people. But yet, it's an old idea. Um, because, uh, what we've learned from anthropologists is that this is the way children always, uh, education was always self-directed until, right. until uh, two or three hundred years ago. And for most people until about 150 years ago or so. Uh, so that, um, so that in the long run, it's not a radical idea, <laughs> but compared right. to what most people believe today, it's a, it's an idea that really requires reframing your thinking. <laughs> okay. It's not just a modification of, of our thinking about schools and the way we usually think it's not like progressive education. Let's do what we're, we always do, but let's give a little more choice and a little more freedom and, right. and a little more respect to the children and so forth. It is an entirely different framework. <laughs> it's basically saying that our job as adults is not to educate children, but our adult, but our job as adults, which is a job, is, is, is to be sure that our children have the opportunities that they need to educate themselves. That's the, the very quickly the framework from which I come when I'm talking about self-directed education. Okay. Yeah, so what... Okay, so the radical idea is that children can direct their own education, if I'm hearing you correctly. That's exactly right. Children can... Children really can educate themselves. That doesn't mean they do it in a vacuum. That doesn't mean right. that they do it without um, the kinds of social influences that everybody has. And it doesn't mean that they do it without asking for help when they, <laughs> when they want and need help. Right, right. And then the other thing you said that I found really interesting is 
because I've thought about self-directed learning within the confines of the school system. And to your point around, you know, people are creating, still doing standardized education, but they're saying like the kids have more choice and they can kind of direct how they're going to go through the, the standardized curriculum. But you're saying that what you're advocating for is not that. That's right. Now, I should say that I also do work with regular schools to bring okay. more uh, play and freedom into schools because okay. I recognize that for some time to come, children are going to be in those schools. Right. But what I, what I re- really favor, what I've really come to believe is ideal for children is a situation where they are, they're in, so here, I mean, let me put it this way. What I've become convinced of, and and I think that this is not so hard to understand for people who really watch children with an open mind, is that children come into the world biologically prepared to educate themselves. Absolutely. Their basic instincts are to educate themselves. And we see that very clearly in very little children before they ever start school. Unfortunately, we're putting kids into school ever earlier. So I used to be able to say that you could watch a child up to the age of five or six and they've learned an enormous amount without anybody in any deliberate way teaching them. I can't say that so clearly now because people are putting three-year-olds, terrible Mm -hmm. to say, in in curriculum-based preschools, which I think is an atrocity, but nevertheless, it is happening. But it used to be that you could watch children develop and think of what they learned without anybody rewarding them or punishing them (laughs) along the way to get them to learn. They learned their whole native language. (laughs) Nobody taught that to them. They just learned it. Of course, they had to hear it. They had to be involved in the world where people speak a language, but they learned it. They learned an enormous about, amount about human nature. They knew, learned how to please and annoy people. <laughs> they, lear- yeah. they learned how they learned an enormous amount about the physical world. Watch little children, and you can't stop them from learning. You can't stop them from exploring. They get into everything because they want to understand everything. We have to baby-proof our house because they want to know what will happen if I drop this lamp on the floor right. or what will yeah. happen if I stick a bobby pin in the electric outlet. Or mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> They're just so curious. It's, it's incredibly curious. Now, what I've learned is that curiosity doesn't necessarily stop at age five or six. We yeah. kill it when we put them in school, <laughs> because right. now their curiosity doesn't count anymore. Now their curiosity is a distraction. Their curiosity, a, a teacher with 30 kids in the class and a curriculum to teach can't deal with each person's curiosity. Right, exactly. You've got to quell it. What, no matter how well-meaning you are as a teacher, you've got to stop it. Yeah. So that's one thing. So curiosity is the drive really to understand the world around you. And as children grow older, if they have the freedom to do so, that drive expands to further and further reaches around them. And it also becomes part of sort of beginning to be curious, who am I? What can I do Uh, at some point? You know, I need to make a living. What do I need to learn to make a living? And so this is what self-directed. So curiosity is part of the, but the complement to curiosity is play. 
Oh yeah, I so, wanted to ask you about play. I, I was hoping you'd bring that up soon. Yeah, so curiosity <laughs> is how children acquire information and knowledge. It's really the drive to know and to understand. Yep. Play is the drive to do things. Play is active. Play is doing things. So curiosity leads you to discover this object here. Play leads you to play with this object here, <laughs> yeah, okay. right? And so what, what my research has shown is that, and, and some of this research is, it comes from, it's not my own research, it's really a summary of other people's research, who, anthropologists who studied how children in hunter-gatherer cultures educate themselves, where they have really basically all day long every day to play and explore all the way from about age four into their teenage years, and they clearly educate themselves for life within the hunter-gatherer culture that way. But it also comes from observing people who, in, a, in alternative democratic schools, who are kind of kind of similar to hunter-gatherers. They have all day to play and explore, basically, mm -hmm. and uh, plenty of opportunity to do so, and I see how they become educated. So children, when they're free, when they really have lots of time to play, play at all of the basic skills that are important to human beings everywhere. So if you think about it, what are the what are the main skills that are needed to be a fully functioning human being? You need to you need you need language. Language is. I'm not saying you absolutely need these. There are people who don't have language who right. survive. But right. But these are the things that we that really make life easier and better. Mm -hmm. One is certainly language. We are we are the linguistic species. Children learn language through play. Their earliest cooing and babbling is playful. Their first words are never used to ask for things. They're just playful. They develop language best when they're playing with other children. Once they've got language, there's research that shows that children's language is far more sophisticated when they're playing with other children than it is when they're talking with adults. And the reason is because the language when they're playing with other children is important. They're negotiating about what they're playing, how they're playing. It's real conversation. It's not the kind of pretend conversation that occurs when an adult says, what color is that? Right. You know? <laughs> that kind of thing that drives kids crazy, right? <laughs> I mean, right. right. The, uh, so the... Uh, so, so children learn language and play. That's one piece. We are also the animal that builds things, right? We have always built our environment. Children yeah. everywhere, when they're free to play, play at building things. They develop the capacity to build things. They develop an understanding of materials and how to build things. They develop the ability to use these this opposable thumb that, we're, that we've inherited, the ability mm -hmm. to use those parts of the mind that can make a plan about what you're building and then to follow through on it. We are the animal with imagination, and imagination underlies the highest order of human thinking, which is hypothetical deductive reasoning. Hypothetical reasoning means let's imagine that this is true, and then what else has to be true? Three- and four-year-olds engage in that all the time in play. Let's imagine that there's a troll under the under the bridge. Uh, the bridge, of course, we're imagining the, the kitchen table is a bridge. So they're, right. they're hypothetical. Troll under the bridge. And then somebody says, well, troll under the bridge, we better give it a cookie so it doesn't eat us. That's hypothetical deductive reasoning. They're right. engaged in this all the time, right? Yeah. <laughs> all yeah. the time. Uh, the, oh, so another, care, another thing that's really important for us to learn is how to 
get along with other people. That may be the most important skill that we have to learn. Way more important than knowing how to read and write. Way more important. You can, you can have a happy life without knowing how to read and write, but you can't have a happy life if you can't, if you don't know how to get along with other people. You can't have a good marriage. You can't have good real friends. You can't have good work partners. You right. can't collaborate in meaningful ways if you can't do that. So it's no surprise that children are extraordinarily motivated to play with other children. (laughs) That's an extraordinarily powerful drive, which unfortunately in our current society, we are almost totally shutting off. We don't allow children to play with other children without adult interfering adults there these days. <laughs> right. And so children are suffering as a consequence of that. That's another line of my research is the ways that children are suffering as a consequence of the restrictions we put on their freedom to play, especially play socially with other children away from adults, away from interference by adults. So that's the, uh, so, so how do children acquire these social skills? They acquire social skills in play. When, when children are playing, play is something that you, that you, that is, is by definition is an activity that is chosen and directed by the players themselves. If, if an outside authority's figure says, now children are going to play this, immediately it's not play. <laughs> so play, by my definition, and by children's definitions, in, in, interestingly, because there's research yeah. asking children, what is this play, is that play, okay. and so on and so forth, is activity that children initiate themselves, <laughs> not activity that's initiated and directed by an adult. So a pickup game of soccer or baseball is play, but an adult-directed little league game is not play. Okay. <laughs> so okay. this is my so be clear on what play what play is. So what are children learning in play? Number one, they're learning how to initiate and direct an activity. But number two, if the activity is social and children always want to play with other kids when they can, they have to choose together. They have to decide together what they're playing. They have to decide together how they're playing. So there's an enormous amount of negotiation and compromise that goes on when children are getting together to play. That doesn't happen if there's an adult there organizing things for them. And what are they learning when they do that? They're learning how to assert their needs while at the same time hearing the needs of their playmates And if they don't hear the needs of their playmates, their playmates are going to leave them. (laughs) And that's a natural consequence of not paying attention to your playmates. So play is how children learn. I've got to, in order to play, in order to get along with these people, and I really desperately want to play with other kids. Yeah. They not, don't necessarily say this in the same language, but at some level they are understanding all right, if I want to play with Susie or Billy or whoever, I've got to pay attention to what Susie or Billy want. <laughs> I, we have to negotiate and compromise. We have to do what we both want to do, not just what I want to do. So kids overcome their egocentrism through social play. You can't talk kids out of that, but they learn it in play. If we don't have adults, they're settling the disagreements if the kids have to settle them themselves. The biggest freedom in play is freedom to quit, the most important freedom. And anybody who feels who's not happy in play is going to quit. And so you 
So the number one requirement in social play is to keep your playmates happy as well as yourself. So this is an extraordinarily important human skill. So none of this can be taught. None of this can be taught in lectures in school. We are putting kids in school so many hours. They're spending so many hours outside of school under adult direction that these days they have very little time and very little opportunity to learn the really important lessons in life, right. which cannot be taught, which have to be acquired through experience. And especially for young children, that experience is play. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm, I wanted to ask you about the sports piece, but I think you just kind of answered it in terms of, so where we are today is that we have, our kids are overscheduled and they're in school all day. And then we get done with school. They have some sort of sports activity or a drama rehearsal or so I regularly tell my son who's 12 years old. And <laughs> I grew up in the eighties and I always say to him, just pretend like it's 1983, just walk down the street and go knock on the kid's door and see what happens. And he, and I've been saying that for years. And a couple of years ago, he came to me and he was really excited. He goes, I did it. I just went outside and I knocked on the kid's door. We played all day. It was so much fun. And you didn't even know where I was for like half the day, you know? And I was like, yes, that's great. That's, that's really good. So what you're saying is we need to find, because the kids aren't playing naturally with each other, without the adult supervision, adult intervention, that we need to create more. We just need to get over it and just give them more space to play is what I'm hearing you say. Exactly. And unfortunately it's become, you know, good for you and good for your, for your son, for, for what you did. That's hard yeah. to do these days and it's yeah. not always going to work. Yeah. Uh, right. But it was easy to do, you know, when I was a kid in the 1950s, it was yeah. very easy to do. And yeah. maybe yeah. for you in the 1980s, it was relatively easy, but it gets harder and harder with every decade. So, you know, it used to be that when I was a kid, we moved around a lot and it was easy to make friends because everybody was outdoors. All you had yeah. to do was go outdoors and there were kids to play Absolutely. with. And you'd go, and there were vacant lots, there were parks, there were all kinds of places to play. Uh, somehow the towns thought sidewalks were important in those days. Nowadays, no, you know, sidewalks don't seem to be created and it's even hard to physically walk from one place to way. another. The you know, thing, yeah. and, well, mm -hmm. you know what the town says, nobody walks anyway, so we're just mm -hmm. building streets, yeah. you know, yeah. so... And and we've made it even so that that um, even parents who want their kids to go out and play find um, two problems. One is, you know, they send the kid out <laughs> like an old-fashioned parent. You know, get out, get out of the house. You got to get out. <laughs> right? Right, and the right, kid right. goes out, but there's nobody to play with. You know, yeah, and, exactly. uh, yes, we and even that if a lot. they did go knock on the door, you know the the parent might not let the other kid out yeah. or they might think this yeah. is really weird. What, why is this kid out? What, what kind of negligent parent has allowed this kid out to <laughs> allowed to walk across the street without the parent accompanying him, you know, mm -hmm. and that happens. So, so it's very hard to find playmates and it's very hard even to find places to play. I, I'll give you an example. I, I sometimes sort of think I'm going to go on a nostalgia trip and I'll go because I've traveled to some state that I used to live in and I'll go and visit the town or city that I used to live in and try to go yeah. and look at the playground. 
the playground's been all fenced in. Yeah, <laughs> you can't maybe. even go into it. Schoolyards are fenced in, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and they're you know, they're used for they're used for formal sports. They're not used for play anymore. <laughs> you know? yeah. So yeah. Well, how sad, you know? You can't. Yeah. Um, and it used to be even like one town I lived in, Hills, Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, that at that time was a, a village unto itself, but now is a suburb of Madison. Uh-huh. And um, that town was a wonderful place to play when I lived there. There was, there was a wonderful park in the center of town, and kids would spend huge amounts of time in that park, especially in the summer. And one of the reasons that parents didn't mind, even if their little kids spent all day in the park and the parents had, didn't have to go there, is there was a, uh, a supervisor in the park whose job was not to tell the kids what to do, not to solve little quarrels, primarily was there, and I think, you know, I think of it as an adult, but it was probably a teenager, it was probably a high school kid who was hired for very little pay to be there in the park, like a camp counselor might be paid, you know, who's there to hand out equipment, and there was all kinds of, there was arts and crafts equipment, it was like a, it was like a free camp that everybody could go to, there were horseshoes, there was baseball equipment, you could do whatever you wanted, there were always a lot of kids there, but you had to organize it yourself, and that person who was the supervisor never bothered you unless there was something serious going on. Like yes. If there was a real fight and people were getting hurt, it wasn't yes. just a typical kid squabble. Or yes. if somebody fell and broke an arm, it wasn't just a skinned knee. You know, right, exactly. you know what to do about it. And so, therefore, uh, parents felt it was safe enough <laughs> to send their kids there. Yeah. You don't find that anymore. No. Towns don't pay for that. Even though it's a tiny expenditure compared to the school expenditure, I once tried to get the town of Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, to get a supervisor in the park, and I pointed out how cheap it would be and how that that park is never used by anybody, but maybe it would be used if they had somebody there who, uh, so parents could feel like it's okay for their kids to go there. And the answer I got is, as long as the school system needs more money, and they always need more money, <laughs> we cannot possibly support something like that. That oh, was the God. response I got from the members of the school co- of the town committee. You know what's interesting about that story about the son is I was just reflecting on how it all played out. It's because we have a high school right behind our house, and he has figured out with his friends how to crawl through the creek and oh, go through whoever cut good. the wire and go to the football field. And then on the that. other side of our house is an old elementary school that's actually closed now, but they have it open, lucky enough. And so nobody cares who's there because it's just it's just nobody's occupying. I think the district has like a preschool there. Right. So they have this huge field. And so the kids, that's what he said to me. He said, well, I went and played football for four hours with my friends. And then I went and we you know, hung out at the park for another four hours. And that's, to your point, that's- it's not even an option. For most kids nowadays, they can't it's even. It's not find really it. an option. Yeah. Where Where do you live? Out of I live in Sacramento, California, in the suburbs of Sacramento. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And our our neighborhoods actually was built in the fifties, and it's you know the school next door is closed, so that's not the local school anymore. So we have to yeah. drive you know two miles to the local school. But to your point, there's not. It's like I remember as a kid, I would just go to the school after school and just hang right. out. And there wouldn't be teachers supervising it, but they'd be kind of around to to your point in case something went wrong, but there wasn't, that was just normal. And nowadays there, and and to your point, like when you knock on the door, typically the kids are, you know, we got basketball, soccer, they're doing four activities. And so they're not getting this 
unstructured play. But I wanted to ask you, because I think this is an important point. Your research has also shown the adverse effects of the shift of not having free play. And I wanted right. to see that. Right. Um, l- let me get to that. There's just one more point okay. I want to make that oh, yeah, as a follow-up from what we were just talking okay, about, great. which is that there's one other reason that I hear from parents who really believe that their children should be out playing, why they yes. feel, why they're constrained from doing so. And that's that many parents who send their kids out get a call from uh, the police. <laughs> oh, they'll call the police. Yeah, I've heard Saying, that. Yeah. you know, some neighbor has reported uh, an eight-year-old out uh, loose. Sorry, this always makes <laughs> right. me laugh. There's a loose eight-year-old. It's not funny, eight-year-old. but it makes me laugh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, isn't this, a, isn't this incredible? Some, some, you know, do-gooder neighbor, uh, probably for what they believe is good intentions, <laughs> yeah, is reporting that here's this child in danger, uh, probably because some negligent parent has allowed that child out without following it. Now, what happens when you report it to the police, the police have to follow it up, at least in most states, by law. And if the police follow up, then social child protective services has to follow up. And so families have this terrible experience, traumatic to the child of the police coming to the home And then child protective services coming to the home. Now, if you are white and middle class, you will fight it and your child will not be taken away from you. Right. But if you are black and poor, there's a decent chance that your child will actually be taken away from you because you will be charged with neglect for not monitoring your child while your child is outdoors. (laughs) So it becomes very high stakes. Yeah, and there are real states. there are real yeah. cases like this, and yeah, there's no question. But what there's a, a racial bias here is, and, mm-hmm. and a poverty bias here. Uh, you, that you come in if the child protective services come into the home, and you know you've got organic food in the refrigerator, and everything looks like you know yeah. their home. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then okay, this is not a negligent parent; they made this mistake. You know, but if they come right. into the home. Poverty is often mistaken for neglect. (laughs) And uh, so this is a very, very serious problem. Um, And it's a problem for everybody, but it's especially a problem. It used to be that I could say with some uh, evidence that the wealthier kids were suffering more than the poor kids. I would ride, I'm a big bicyclist, and I would ride various neighborhoods in, when we live near Worcester, Massachusetts, which is a fairly big city. Yeah. And there are black areas and poor, relatively poor areas, and there are white areas. And I would find a lot more kids outdoors playing in the poor areas than, okay. but that's not true anymore. And I think uh-huh. that that's not true anymore because of the fact that of this fear of the police, (laughs) of the fear of the police and of child protective services, um, even, you know, so, so even people who still are living in neighborhoods where there's a lot of kids and people believe it's important for kids to be outdoors playing, even they are not sending their kids out anymore the way they used to. Really important distinction that it becomes high stakes. So even if the parents want to, and I did, I think I heard that there's like these laws now where they're calling free range states or free range counties? Yeah, actually, I'm part of that. So the organization okay. Let Grow, which um, I helped to find, the primary the primary instigator of Let Grow is Lenore Skenazy, who wrote a book called Free Range Kids. And okay. um, her book came out a little bit before my book on called Free to Learn. And so uh-huh. we had a 
similar but complementary messages. So I made a point of getting to know her, and we've become good friends and colleagues and uh, together, and then with some other people, we started this organization, Let Grow. What, we, Let Grow works with public schools to bring more play into the schools, but it also works with state legislators to, um, to lobby for uh, what are often called reasonable independence laws. Okay. And basically what the reasonable independence law is, and there are now something like five or six states which have passed it. Uh, I don't think California is one, but Texas is probably the biggest state that's passed okay. it. Um, it's a, um, it basically is a, a law that says that it's fundamentally up to parents, not up to the state to determine what is safe or not safe for a particular child. Unless by common sense, any reasonable person would say that this is dangerous for the child. So there's always a lot of discussion by the lawyers on this. What on earth is common sense and all of that, as lawyers will discuss. And there's always a lot of debate about that. And in some cases, it was hard to pass because of debate about the wording. People want precision. Mm -hmm. You know, like some people say, well, we ought to have a particular age. Like, let's say it's okay if the child is over eight. Right. But how do you say that? I mean, I was free to bicycle all over my town when I was five. I could, in many, living in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as I said, we moved a lot. When yeah. I was four, I was allowed to walk two blocks to a store to get things for my grandmother without yeah. anybody accompanying me in a busy street. In, and I could right. do it. And kids did those things in those days. So how do you mm-hmm. say what the age is? If you say four, Correct, yeah. people will think you're crazy these days. So oh, sure. the thing yeah. is, you have to leave it up you have to leave it vague because you know, some four-year-olds can do that. I could do that at four, but I wouldn't trust every four-year-old to do it. Yeah. And frankly, I think it's a little dangerous to trust some 25-year-olds to do it. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, there are so many personality differences. Yeah. There's differences in the neighborhood. And, the pro, and, and so it's got to boil down to common sense. Yes. <laughs> and yes. you can't legislate common sense you have to begin Mm. to trust people (laughs) you know okay so that's yeah that's really interesting and i'm glad you shared those those extra points but tell us about the adverse effects that you're yes yeah i'm so so curious about who are interested in this um my most recent article on this is one that has just come out in the journal of uh, pediatrics. Uh, it's in the September issue of the Journal of Pediatrics. You may not be able to get it by uh, going to the journal unless you're willing to pay a lot of money, or, but you could get it if you have access to a university library. But there's another way to get it, which is perfectly legal. If you go to my website, just Peter Gray dot org, <laughs> yep. okay. uh, you will find on my website my personal copies of a number of articles, including that one. And that one is prominently displayed right on the homepage of the website. So you can, you can download it free there and illegally there because it's my personal copy rather than a copy you're getting from the journal. So the, um, so, so it's a relatively short article and it summarizes in, clear language aimed at pediatricians, but in a way that everybody could understand. 
the fundamental question is why do we have the huge uh, epidemic of anxiety, depression, and even suicides yes. among children and teens today? This is not normal child and teen behavior. This is not something that has been seen in past history. This is something, and nor is it, however, completely new. It's not something that just has sprung upon us in the last few years, as yeah. some people would like to believe. This is something that's been gradually increasing over really the last at least 70 years. At least since the 1960s, there's been a gradual but overall huge increase in anxiety, depression, suicides among teens and young adults, but not among older adults. And in fact, the rates of depression and suicide over the same period of time have gone down for people who are my age, people over mm -hmm. 65, they've okay. gone down. So this is something that's happening to teenagers and it's happening to those who are lit beyond the teenage years, um, but especially to teenagers. And it's also happening to younger children, but younger children rarely commit suicide right. and, right. and rarely present with the kinds of symptoms that lead to the diagnosis of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, by DSM criteria of depression or, or uh, generalized anxiety. But clinicians over this time are reporting more and more cases of fears and kind of sense of hopelessness among younger children too. So I think it's happening really at all age levels, but it's showing up primarily among teenagers. Okay. So, but this has been gradually increasing so that the rates of these things have been increasing almost in a linear fashion with some dip uh, in the late part of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, but then rising again more recently. So what's causing all of this? So I've gone through various hypotheses and none of them work <laughs> except for this one, which seems to me to be completely common sense as well as borne out by empirical evidence. <laughs> Over, this is the period of time that we have been gradually taking children's freedoms away from us. People, uh, people, every generation of people feels like when they were kids, they were freer than their own kids are now, just as I'm sure you feel that. Mm -hmm. And I feel that when I had kids and I had my kids were were kids when you were a kid. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and, and I even hear it from young parents today. Oh, yeah, I was so much freer in the 1990s or 2000s than my kids are today. But we okay. hear there's actual research. This happens to be done in the UK in which they ask, and this was done a, a number of years ago. So we're really talking primarily about events in the 20th century uh, in which they interviewed families where the same people for, had lived in the same area, which hadn't changed much in, in, for several generations. And they asked uh, the parents uh, who, uh, at the time that the study was done, and this was maybe 10 or 15 years ago, they asked parents, you know, how far away from home can your child, and these were children between 6 and 10, uh, travel? And the basic answer 
was they can't leave the front yard. <laughs> okay. They asked the parents, when you lived here in this same neighborhood, how far could you travel uh, on your own? And the answer, the, the median of the answer, there's a lot of variation, but the median of the answer was half a kilometer. Okay. okay? So, you know, that's roughly about a quarter of a mile, I guess. Mm -hmm. So the, a little more than that. So the, and then they asked the grandparents, (laughs) when you were a child, how far could you travel away from home? Many of them said there was no limit. I could go anywhere. But the median answer was five kilometers. (laughs) So the, uh, without, you know, this was between six and 10, right? These are little kids. These are young kids. These are not teenagers yet. So within this same area, which by all accounts was as safe as it had ever been, (laughs) the change over this period of time, which was roughly from about 1950 until the end of the 20th century, was such that children who initially had freedom to kind of go wherever they wanted (laughs) now were confined to their front yard. (laughs) You know, and even then, I've heard from parents who say they've had somebody call the police because their child was playing in the front yard and the parent wasn't out there. And even though the parents said I was watching them out the window, nobody could see that their parent was watching them out the window, so somebody called. I mean, this is, what has happened is absurd. This is absurd fears. But we don't think of it as absurd because everybody, so many people do it, we think it's normal and we think it's, we're increasingly thinking it's negligent parenting not to guard your children that way. So why would these changes, so children have less opportunity to, far less opportunity to play, to explore, to have adventures, to do things on their own than they had in the past. And this has been that not suddenly taken away from them. This has been gradually taken away over years. And the reason nobody has rebelled about it is because it's been gradual, so people have hardly noticed it. One year to the next, it's not a big change. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But over a 50 to 70 year period, it's a huge change. It's basically a change from freedom to prison. It's basically a change from freedom to prison. I think it's not too much, you know, this may sound like I'm exaggerating. This may sound like, wait, what is he talking about? When I say that to some, it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that children are more or less imprisoned around the clock. Hmm. School is a prison. In school, they're told what to do all the time. There's less and less freedom. Play has largely been taken away in our schools. Recess has been diminished, if not cut out entirely. And even recess is controlled. I know recesses where you're not allowed to play tag, God forbid, because somebody might get hurt or the touching might seem sexual. You know, right. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is ridiculous. You can't bring, you know, when I was a kid in recess, you know, people will think this is, people will think this is crazy. But when I was a kid in, in recess, certainly by the, by third grade or fourth grade, back then, all boys carried pocket knives, you know, jack knives mm-hmm. that you could oh, open yeah. up. And we played all kinds of games with them. We 
took him to school. We played jackknife games yeah. at recess. <laughs> you know, yeah. now if you bring a little plastic knife that you couldn't hurt a flea with, right. you'll get sent home <laughs> yeah. with yeah. a note that you violated. You know, the right. weapons policy of the school. I mean, you know, where 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 is our common sense? There was right. a boy. There was a kindergarten boy who was sent home out of school because he kissed a little girl on the cheek and it was called sexual harassment. Right. You know, this is uh, where we have lost, we have become so obsessed with certain kinds of dangers and exaggerated them to such a degree that we've lost all common sense. And the result of that is that, our, is that we have more or less imprisoned our children. So the children are not free in school. Then after school, they're more or less under home confinement, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's like home detention. It's like because they can't go out unless they go out into yet another adult-directed activity where once again, and it might be a fun activity. I'm not against adult-directed sports. I'm not against music lessons. I'm not against those kinds of things. But it's not play. It's yet again more... So, being subordinated to adults. Adults are telling you what to do. Adults are telling you how to do it. Adults are solving the problems for you. It is not play. Right. It's not an opportunity for you to learn that you have power, that you can do things, that you can solve problems. So to me, this is common sense. I, but again, I give lots of converging lines of evidence in the article for people who want to know the more scientific evidence. But here's the common sense behind it. Number one, Depression is, by definition, the lack of happiness, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. What makes children happy? Play. Play makes children happy. You yeah. ask children what makes them happy, and they'll tell you play. You show children various activities and say, which of these things are various things? Which of these things make you happy? There's actually research studies done like this as if we needed such studies to prove it. And the result is play makes them happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. There's nothing that makes them happier than play. <laughs> Play is better than a birthday cake, you know. <laughs> yeah, so really that is. that makes this that you know uh, that makes children happy. You take away play, and they're going to be unhappy. They're going to be more depressed. That's for young children. For older children, play is more in the order. It's not quite the same kind of thing. It's more like hobbies. It's pursuing your own interests. It's doing the things you want to do as opposed to the things that you're you're required to do. Right. It might even be hanging out with other kids and some of it might be getting into mischief, right? I mean, that's what teenagers do. They always right. do. I, I've come to believe they have to get into that's mischief to grow yeah. up properly. You know, yeah. Yeah, exactly. that's part of growing up, but we don't allow them to do that anymore. No. You know, and so they're, so they're guarded all the time. And so you take all this away and what, and what happens is you're removing, number one, the immediate source of happiness, but you're also removing the opportunities to acquire the kinds of character traits that are necessary for long-term well-being. What are those character traits? That's basically the sense that I can solve problems. Right. I can deal with the bumps in the road of life. Something can happen tomorrow and it won't kill me. It won't yeah. ruin my life. I can, I can, I, I can deal with it. I've, I've been out. If, if for in the past for kids who've played, they've dealt with a lot of problems. They got lost and they figured out how to get home. They got in trouble and they figured out how to get out of trouble. You know, yeah. they, they broke an arm and they found it didn't kill them. <laughs> you yeah. know, they got into a, they got, they were bullied and they figured out 
without ever telling anybody that they were bullied. They figured out how to deal with the bully. I can deal with bullies. <laughs> right. You know, they figured things out and they realized I can solve problems. I can figure things out. They developed what psychologists call an internal locus of control. Mm-hmm. That mean, that's basically the sense I'm in control of my future. I can, I can deal with problems that arise. I can make decisions for myself. I can run my life. And that internal locus of control, of course, it's never full. We can't always solve our problems. We can't always run our lives. But to the degree that people believe they can, there is, they, they, they take more actual charge of their lives. And there's research that shows that people there's actually a clinical questionnaire to assess locus of control. Mm, okay. And there's research that shows that people who score high on an internal locus of control are far less likely to suffer in the future from anxiety or depression, mm. far less likely to commit suicide than people who have a high internal locus of control. Now, no surprise, this a test for internal versus external locus of control has been given to to teenagers, school, high school kids, mm-hmm. over the decades that I'm talking about, especially from the 1960s through the end of the 20th century, no surprise, scores on internal locus of control continuously decline mm-hmm. from okay. decade to decade. To me, the reason for that is obvious. If you take away the opportunity to control your life, how are you going to learn that you can control your life? How are you going to develop the skills that lead you to be confident that you can control your life? If you're constantly controlled by other people, then of course you're going to answer this questionnaire. You're going to really believe, no, I'm kind of a victim of circumstances. I'm a victim of powerful other people. I'm a victim of those bullies out there. I'm a victim of bad parents. I'm a victim of this and that. We blame everybody else for our problems. And that doesn't solve our problems. (laughs) Being, believing I can solve my problems. (laughs) That's what leads to better mental health. Yeah. Wow. No, that is the way you broke that down is so clear. And like you said, it's just, it's kind of like common sense. And, you know, I worked in schools where our number one goal was just to how do we create an environment where the kids actually have agency and they actually get to work out problems on their own and realize that they have control over their lives. And it's powerful. You see the change. Right. So one thing we do uh, at Let Grow, working with public schools, is there are are two um, school interventions that can that we uh, promote and um, help and really developed. And uh, there are now probably hundreds of schools doing it, many of which we don't even know are doing it. They're just downloading the information from the Let, from the Let Grow website. Uh, one of them is one that I actually developed, and, it is, and the schools call it Play Club. Okay. And so what Play Club is, is it's uh, an hour of age-mixed free play okay. where all the kids in the school, uh, if, if that's physically possible, mm-hmm. are playing together at the same time. <laughs> okay. And my wish was, would be that this was an hour during the regular school day, but schools these days are not willing to sacrifice that's an hour. Tough, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, tragically. 
quickly, they're not willing. They somehow think that that one more hour of drill is better for them than play. Uh, ridiculous belief. But let's say, that, but we can't get through to them on that. So mm-hmm. what they do is they is it's an hour of free play either before school or after school. Most often before school. Okay. At first I worried, well, before school, I'd be getting up early is tough for kids. <laughs> They're right. not going to want to come early, but it turns out they do want to come early. Oh, they, yes. they, they tell their mom, tomorrow is play club. <laughs> be right. sure to get me up. I need yes. to get to school. This has been a tremendous success. And by every account, we're now doing some controlled systematic studies in the state of New Hampshire where some schools, uh, this is done through Boston College, but with the um, sanction of the Commissioner of Education in New Hampshire. Okay. So we're doing, so some of the schools are uh, bringing play club into the school and others that are control schools, similar schools are not. And we're taking a variety of measures. What, what effect does this have on anxiety and depression on how much they like school on among other things, how the, well they do in school, how many friends they have, how much they play after school, uh, all kinds of, uh, locus of control, all kinds of measures. Yeah. And so we don't have that data yet. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. But the anecdotal reports and, and there have been a couple of academic publications by independent researchers uh, of uh, Play Club on Long Island in, um, in schools in Long Island, New York, uh, which report that by ev- all, the, all the people involved with this, the kids themselves, of course, but also the parents, the teachers, the administrators of the schools all say that play club has been extraordinarily beneficial to the school, that the kids have feel better about school, they are less burned out, they have more friends, because it's age mixed, the little kids are no longer afraid of the big kids, they realize, hey, the big kids are really kind of cool, and they they help me, and they take care of me, and the big kids like the little kids. Uh, The age mixed aspect of it was very much part of my idea, because a lot of my research is on the value of age mixed play, which I think is far more nurturing and valuable than when kids are all segregated by age, when play tends to become a little more competitive uh, and a little bit less nurturing and a little bit less creative. So that's, um, so that's one thing we do. And um, it's only for most schools, it's only an hour a week, but fortunately some of them are talking about let's do it more than an hour a week. The kids certainly want it more than that. Yeah. And, and so one way to look at it for some, somebody who played, you know, 40 hours a week outdoors, one hour a week seems like a drop in the bucket. But another way to think of it is a cup of water. If you've been out in the desert, that's the difference between life and death. And and so this is a huge benefit, (laughs) even though it's just an hour. And I think that the effect is more than an hour because we haven't proven this yet, but there's some anecdotes that this is leading the kids to make friends, to get together more likely outside of school, to be leading parents to think, hey, play is really valuable for my kid. I need to provide more opportunity for play. It's having effects beyond just the one hour a week of 
of play. Yeah. The, the other thing I should say about Play Club is besides the fact it's age mix and there's all the kids together, there's lots of things to do. There's You don't have to play in just one way. Okay. There's indoor games, there's puzzles, there's art, there's hula hoops, there's as well as balls and, and you can play you can play outdoors in the playground, you can play in the gymnasium, you can play in the hallways. Mm -hmm. In one play club that I was visiting because um, a news uh, station was doing a a video on it and they wanted me there to comment on it. One of that I was visiting, there were kids running in the hallway and I <laughs> I said to the filmmaker, where have you seen kids running in a school hallway and nobody is nobody is telling them to stop? Isn't right, that right. wonderful? <laughs> you know? They're running, they're playing chase games in the hallways of the school. You know, this is this is great. And and as a result, I think they begin to feel like this school isn't such a bad place after right. all, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so that's a, have it's having that effect. So the other intervention is actually a much easier one to do, and it doesn't even require the whole school's approval. It just requires individual teachers wanting to do it. And uh, that was that intervention was developed. Uh, by my colleague Lenore Skenazy, and it's something that she had been doing individually with families uh, all, already. And the way this works is that the teacher, usually in elementary schools, but increasingly a number of middle schools are doing it too, gives an assignment to the kids in her class. That And the assignment is that between now and sometime next week, um, you need to do, the assignment is to do something outside of school that you've never done before. Okay. And that's, a, and, and ideally something that's a little bit scary. <laughs> yep. Ideally something, something you want to do, but okay. something that you have at least a little bit of fear about doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but of course you have to get your parents' permission to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it has to be something that your parents would agree to. Uh, you might have to negotiate with your parents to get them to agree to it, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's basically the assignment. And then you have to come back and report on what you did, right? And so, so the genius of this is that the kid goes home to the parent. And this has been, maybe this has been a kid who has long been begging the parent to be allowed to ride her bicycle mm -hmm. right. two blocks away right. from right. home. To visit her friend without her mom having to drive her there or walk her there. And this might right. be an 11-year-old, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. Who can't do what five-year-olds could freely do mm -hmm. <laughs> in the 1950s and 60s. So the, uh, so the, so the daughter comes home and this is a typical scenario. They're not all like this and says, so I have to do this thing for school, right? right and so right. immediately, of course, the parent has to take it seriously. This isn't yes. just the daughter saying, I want to write. This is for school. Right? Yes, yes. And parents these days are way too concerned about how kids are doing in school. So the parent pays attention to it, has to pay attention to it. And so you, and you've got to give a report on it. Well, so the, so the kids, so the kid says, well, I want to write my, and so the mother says, well, oh, no, <laughs> that's too dangerous. Right. And so the kid then negotiates. So the kid says, well, how about if I just ride to the end of the block and back and you can sit on the stoop in front of the house and watch me? <laughs> yeah. 
And so the parent says, okay, well, that's all right. <laughs> and so the kid does that and goes back on report and reports on it. Now, what happens is, and this is what Lenore predicted would happen based on her previous experiences with this. She actually used to do this as part of a reality television program that was in Canada, never showed in the U.S., but she would okay. go into homes and she would get... She would get kids to negotiate with their parents about doing something. And then, and then what she would find is not only was the kid proud of doing it, but the mm -hmm. parent was proud of right. the kid and of herself for allowing the kid to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so it broke the cycle of yes. fear and, and saying no. So, so what happens is the, the, the kid comes home face glowing. <laughs> I did this thing. I rode all the way to the end of the block and back. And here I am alive to tell the tale. <laughs> and, the, right. and, the, and the mother sees that glow and the mother feels good about allowing the child to do this. So next week, <laughs> the child says, all right, could I ride my bike to my friend's house two blocks away? Right. Maybe he's still not there, but something yeah. much closer. But eventually mm -hmm. the kid is riding her bicycle two blocks right, away, right. and the cycle has been broken and now the the ask can get bigger and bigger when instead of right instead of the parent always being so fearful the parent now begins to feel some pride they in the child's yeah. ability to do things independently which is mm -hmm. which is what parents used to feel and what yes. used to be emphasized you know it the, the advice, there's actually a whole book, uh, uh, with an analysis of advice to parents, um, mm -hmm. in popular magazines for parents, like Good Housekeeping and Parents Magazine. Yeah. Analyze this advice to parents over the decades from, uh, early in the 20th century until later. Beginning about 1960, before about 1960, the advice was always encouraging independence. What? Your five-year-old doesn't want to walk to kindergarten? Right. <laughs> oh, you've got to help your child get over that fear, right? right, right. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> you know, the, the feeling was that it's parents' responsibility to help children develop courage, yes. <laughs> not to frighten children. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah. So, but... And the, but gradually this analysis, it was a content analysis of hundreds of articles, gradually the advice changed. Okay. The tipping point was around 1980 where the predominance of advice was for, oh no, it would be dangerous for your child to walk. The preponderance right. of advice became protective and mm. encouraging the idea that children are fragile rather than mm. strong and resilient. Right. And right. The, the advice changed, and it changed gradually, but kind of the, there was kind of a somewhat of a tipping point around 1980, and then it became ever increasing. Okay. So the same things that were being encouraged earlier on were now being regarded as negligent later, <laughs> later on. It, it was a, it's a wonderful summary of the historical change in right. our attitudes and our beliefs, even the beliefs that are coming from supposed experts who are advising parents <laughs> about, right. uh, about uh, what we should do with children. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, on that, on that, we're going to wrap it up. I really appreciate you spending the time with us today. And I learned a lot, which I knew I would. And like you said, a lot of it's common sense. And so it, it felt really good to 
validate a lot of things I already believe and to know that you have the research to support it. So that's always, that always feels good. Where can people find you? I know you have petergrade.org and you have a Substack. What would you like to share with them? Yeah, so I would I would really encourage the Substack is relatively new and you can subscribe free if you'd like. And so I'd okay. encourage people to go to that. You can find a link to it easily enough on, on my webpage at petergrade.org. I also have for many years been writing a regular blog for Psychology Today called okay. uh, uh, Freedom to Learn. Um, and I have at this point, something like 250 essays on these oh, ideas wow. okay. on that, on that blog. So people who are interested, but, but I, um, I would say that my website, you can find and download any of my, uh, most of my academic articles. You can find videos. Uh, you can find my TEDx talk on the value of play. You can find various materials there. So, um, uh, I think that's probably the best place to go and it's freely, easily accessible. Right. Yeah. I definitely was able to access all that and it was really helpful. So, all right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Changemaker EDU podcast. Every guest and listener is a valued part of this co-creation. We're honored that you listen and we hope that this helped you in some small or big way today. This is a community and a movement and without you, it wouldn't be possible. If you want to learn more about me, go to davidkrichards.com. And as always, if you're so moved, please rate and review the podcast. And finally, our greatest compliment is when you share an episode with someone who you believe will benefit from the message. Sending you immense love and courage today. Thank you.